Early in the morning of 2nd of October, 1874, a fashionable part of North London was shattered by the largest explosion ever yet to take place in London. Sorry about the slides, they're very, very old. A barge on the Regent's Canal, carrying a dangerous combination of gunpowder and petroleum in an open hold, caught fire and violently exploded as it passed under Macclesfield Bridge, close to London Zoo. The bridge was totally destroyed and its heavy cast iron columns scattered like matchsticks. A mere four lives were lost on this occasions. occasion, three bargees and a boy, because the force of the explosion was largely contained by the steep sides of the canal cutting. But much damage was done to local property, including some of the elegant houses on the north side of Regent's Park, and windows were shattered up to a mile away. The incident provoked a public outcry, not least as it, was the as it was the latest in a long series of explosives disasters involving considerable loss of life. So what, you might ask, does this 19th century disaster have to do with the fire at Grenfell Tower over 140 years later? Well, in each case, these tragedies concern a shocking episode in an urban environment involving considerable loss of human life. Yet both are, in fact, the dramatic result of much longer-term social problems, of which many are aware, but that have not yet been resolved. In each case, public outcry led to public investigation into the causes, examines the nature of any regulation, and points to action to prevent similar disasters. Now, the word regulation immediately excites the administrative historian, for we like to look at the functioning of governments in enforcing legislation. Before Shane focuses on the Grenfell Tower tragedy, I want to take the long view and look back at the second half of the 19th century. It was a time when increasingly severe consequences of industrialization, population growth and urbanization Issues arriving, arising out of a newly capitalist society were creating social problems that could no longer be solved at the level of local government. Historians of the 19th century have shown how in significant fields of social welfare, such as the administration of aid to the poor, the promotion of public health and sanitation, the protection of labour, Solutions to problems were increasingly being sought through central government control. The key to successful implementation of parliamentary legislation directed at these improvements was the appointment of central government inspectors. These officials, engaged in a process of inquiry, acquired close knowledge of those in the field that they were inspecting and steadily began to accumulate statistics regularly reported on to Parliament. They became experts in the enforcement of reforms enacted by Parliament. Now there's been much debate about the time frame of this process, which was far from a streamlined forward movement in any one area. But it can now, I think, convincingly be argued that the period roughly from 1860 to 1914, if haltingly in many cases, was overall a period of the growth of central state intervention through regulation in many areas to protect the weaker elements of society from exploitation.
Let us take the Home Office, a Whitehall department at the centre of social regulation in this period, which between 1833 and 1905 acquired 12 new inspectorates. By no means all were the results of disasters causing multiple deaths, but they were the legislative regulatory outcome through parliamentary legislation of what became considered as unacceptable social conditions. This apparently strangely assorted list of its new responsibilities came to the Home Office, officially the department known as the Residuary Legatee, more popularly known as the Department of Last Resort. In other words, it had responsibility for matters not specifically designated to others, such as the Board of Trade or Local Government Board. The important uh, point about their position in Whitehall was that the experts in these external agencies, while responsible to the most senior Home Office departmental officials, worked in what were known as the outdoor departments, for much of their activity was out and about in the field of their responsibility. Gradually, they became the tools of an increasingly socially oriented state. Several inspectorates were later transferred to other Whitehall departments. Two were noted there, and others moved um, after World War I. Before returning to the setting up and working of the Explosives Inspectorate, which I mentioned to start with, let us examine how, examine how earlier inspectorates were established, matured, and became effective by focusing on the factory inspectorate that started in 1833, the year after the Great Reform Act, 1832. Electoral reform, coinciding with the growth of utilitarian thinking associated with Bentham, is the important context for 19th century social reform legislation. Thus, Bentham hero of 19th century administrative historians. What the 1832 Reform Act did was to provide for the entry of middle-class members of parliament and to prompt discussion of social issues. By doing so, its actions almost inadvertently pointed the way to two important principles, that government, i.e. ruling politicians, might directly interfere in economic affairs in order to protect vulnerable individuals, and two, that Whitehall might supervise local government in order to ensure that this intervention was carried out effectively. Now I'm going to start with the factory inspectorate very briefly. It was the department of the Home Office for decades and decades, right up I think you can say until the Second World War, that took the biggest part of its budget. On the whole, it's taking nearly a third of the Home Office budget, certainly into the 1920s. In the early 1830s, the grim position of child labour in textile factories in, Lan in Lancashire and Yorkshire was taken up by two evangelical social reformers from Leeds, Richard Osler and Michael Sadler. This encouraged Lord Ashley, who became Lord Shaftesbury, to promote legislation to provide decent working conditions in factories and restrict, restrict hours of labour for children and therefore for the wider workforce. Opposition from textile manufacturers led to the setting up of a royal commission. The utilitarian outcome of this was the 1833 Factory Act 
that sought to safeguard the physical, moral, and mental health of children and young persons by restricting the hours of work for different age groups and by providing for their education, basic education. The difference between this act and earlier factory legislation was the provision for paid central government inspection. Whether this early enforcement measure was effective is frankly doubtful. Quite apart from the enormity of the task facing the four original officers with two sub-inspectors in terms of factory visits, the Act had numerous loopholes. One of the many was their inability effectively to refer cases to local JPs, who turned out to be the very owners of the factories concerned for powerful interests were ingenious at contriving means of evading the law. They were also hampered by a frequent inability to determine a child's age. In 1859, the first able first inspector, Leonard Horner, lamented the defective state of the Factory Act that makes evasion easy, I'm quoting him here, detection and conviction difficult, and assigns penalties which are felt as nothing compared with the profits derived from infractions of the law. But the main obstacle to the efficiency of inspection was the paucity of investment, investment in the inspectorate. This continued for decades. While the factory inspectorate slowly increased, even by 1860 there were a mere four inspectors and 15 poorly paid sub-inspectors to cover well over 6,000 fact factories. Nevertheless, this was the beginning of a decades-long halting process of ameliorating working conditions in factories through state regulation. The pattern went like this. A. Pressure is exerted for amelioration of intolerable working conditions from journalists and humanitarian writers. Dickens exposed the occupational hazard of white lead in his all year round. From public philanthropists, and increasingly as labor became more organized, from labor-inclined MPs such as A.J. Mandela, and in the 1880s, Thomas Burt and Henry Broadhurst. Parliamentary pressure impels the Home Office, with input from the factory inspectorate, to work on legislation. Further round, because it's a secular process, where pressure from industrialists was felt to be heavy, a royal commission or select committee would be set up to investigate. It makes recommendations, many of which find their way to a principal or an amending act, this legislation includes more effective methods of enforcement through inspection, and so we come back to the beginning with a new act, a greater inspectorate, more involvement, more recommendations from the people involved on, in the field, and so on. An important example of this process led in 1867 to an act that added responsibilities for workshops, a huge addition of premises, as well as factories and in 1878 to a Consolidating Factory and Workshop Act that, quotes, established the basis of intervention for the rest of the century. That gives you just some idea of the increase in the number of premises, the relationship of employees to inspectors, the Treasury budget each year, I mean the Home Office budget granted by the Treasury, and um, I'm coming back to this table, which is why it's highlit, 
the export of British, the value of British exports at a very crucial moment. Four, a breakthrough in their effectiveness came in the 1890s with both political leadership at the top and the emergence of a young and able industrial de departmental team within the Home Office. This is the period at which the um, open competition um, Northcote Trevelyan recruits arrive in positions, a position of responsibility in terms of decision-making in the, depart the central department. And together with a very good Home Secretary, they really made things happen in the world of factory inspections. In 1892, the cautious and conservative Henry Matthews was replaced in Gladstone's final Liberal government by Herbert Asquith, whose attention was immediately turned to the organization of the factory department where he brought in major reforms. Very quickly, he proposed an expansion of the inspectorate, including a new grade of much needed working men inspectors dedicated to tracking down in sanitary workshops where illegal sweating occurred, the appointment of two peripatetic women inspectors, and that force grew very quickly, the women's inspectorate, and the creation of several regional offices in the hope that these would become inspectors' centre of communication with both employers and representatives of employees could gather and discuss problems and, very important, where statistical information could be garnered. The Home Office had been very slow at collecting decent statistical information and this was the moment when it took off. The following year, he secured further government expenditure for another expansion of the inspectorate. Thus, an inspectorate establishment of 57, costing 31,000 in 1891 to 2, was rapidly expanded with far better organisation to 111, costing 51,000 in 1896 to 7. And that highlit period is the one that I'm talking about at the moment, where um, great strides forward were made. Now let us go back to the Explosives Inspectorate, which also grew out of the department's responsibility for public safety, in this case the manufacture, storage and transport of explosive substances. The story of the 1875 Explosives Act and the work of the first inspector of explosives, Colonel Vivian Magendie, well illustrates my point about the inner momentum of bureaucracy and the need for expertise. The commercial use of explosives was of increasing importance in the quarrying, mining, construction and demolition industries. Until the mid-1860s, the prime instrument used was gunpowder, whose production was regulated by a Gunpowder Act of 1860. Following the explosion of an ammunition and percussion cap factory in Birmingham, causing the deaths of 21 men. This act promoted a licensing system for gunpowder factories and magazines. It soon proved effective. There was no limit to the duration of licenses, nor could they be revoked once granted, and the Home Secretary did not take up the option to appoint inspectors. During the 1860s, there followed further well-publicised accidents causing widespread public concern, including an explosion at a gunpowder magazine at Erith in 1864. At the ensuing inquest on those killed, 
the coroner's jury pointed to the many omissions and imperfections of existing legislation, suggesting amendments. Pressure on the Home Office to promote legislation mounted. Correspondence and visits from deputations, more pressure from coroner's juries, reached a crescendo after a series of fatal ex explosions in Birmingham between 1869 and 1870, one alone causing the death of 53 men. Meanwhile, a whole new and potentially more dangerous situation was becoming apparent. For Alfred Nobel was developing a highly effective explosive substance from nitroglycerin. This he'd patented as dynamite in 1867. Now, pure nitroglycerin was a very highly fragile, was very highly fragile and liable to explode by spontaneous decomposition, especially in its transport. Nobel himself managed to obviate this danger by combining the substance with absorbents and chemical stabilizers, thus making it safe to use and transport. But these processes were ill understood by the industry and even less so by the Home Office, who in 1866 hurriedly passed a Carriage and Deposit of Dangerous Goods Act, simply declaring that nitroglycerin must be visibly labelled dangerous, especially dangerous, and empowering the government to add other explosives to the same category. No effective means of enforcing the Act were laid down. Then, in July 1869, a Carnarvon, the Carnarvonshire Chief Constable reported to the Home Office that in his area a cartload of dynamite had exploded, blowing cart, horses and carters to atoms and doing a great deal of damage to a nearby village. How, he inquired of the Home Secretary, might the dynamite agents be proceeded against? The Home Office Permanent Undersecretary revealed manifest ignorance of the difference between nitroglycerin and dynamite. In panic, in the face of mounting public disquiet, the department hastily drafted what became the 1869 Nitroglycerin Act that was enacted in Parliament before its summer recess without debate. This made Home Office licenses compulsory for the handling of any nitroglycerin and forbade its import. Nobel was apoplectic with rage. He was ambitious to exploit the expanding and responsive British and colonial market for highly effective explosives and he was also in the process of setting up his first dynamite factory in Ardea, Ayrshire. That's a, a slide of the, the office of his factory. Nobel was even more outraged with the outcome of the new act, for the Home Office had finally got round to seeking some scientific advice and hastily acted upon the report of a War Office chemist. It was decided that dynamite should not be transported but must be made and used in one place. Nobel's agent, a man called John Downey, who tragically but ironically was himself to be killed in an explosives accident in 1875, bombarded the Home Office with applications and protests. The act they expostulated was grossly and unnecessarily restrictive. In fact, a further scientific report on the subject by the Professor of Chemistry at King's College London stipulating that dynamite could be transport safely, transported safely if it were handled with care, persuaded the Liberal Home Secretary, Henry Bruce, to ease total restriction on transport. And in 1871, 
the Home Office granted a license for manufacturer manufacture at Ardea. But Nobel Downey and the users of dynamite never ceased to grumble about the way in which the legislation was implemented by the Home Office. At this point, Bruce, in the limelight yet again in 1870, as a result of the Birmingham explosions I mentioned, sensibly appointed an expert to investigate widely and report on the broader problem of explosives with a view to further legislation. This was Vivian Daring Magendi, a Royal Artillery officer, aged 34, who having been on active service in the Crimea in India, was then assistant superintendent at the Royal Arsenal Woolwich. Appointed Inspector of Gunpowder Works, Major Magendi made an exhaustive investigation. He visited hundreds of factories and magazines, consulted explosives manufacturers and dealers, local authorities, coroners, managers of railway and canal companies and other government inspectors. He inspected the sites of previous explosions and attended inquests on those killed. He made comparative studies of continental and American practices. It's a very interesting feature of the Home Office at this time. They're really interested in what's happening in Europe and in America in all sorts of um, areas of inspection. In conclusion, he recommended that a single homogeneous law should replace the existing inadequate piecemeal legislation on all explosives, setting out comprehensive regulations covering their manufacture, storage and transport. For effective enforcement, he proposed a permanent inspectorate of thoroughly qualified officers. On the one hand, he was sensitive to the interests of the industry, arguing against the unnecessarily restrictive measures of the 1869 Nitroglycerin Act, for example. On the other hand, in true Benthamite fashion, he argued for effective regulation, including first considerable powers for the inspectorate, including that of immediate seizure of goods in a dangerous situation, and secondly, elasticity through delegated legislation to deal with new products and contingencies. Once again, delay and procrastination afflicted the Home Office. Bruce's conservative successor, Richard Cross, tossed the matter to a select committee on explosive substances in order to give the trade an opportunity to be heard. It was at this point that the notorious Regent's Canal explosion rocked London and was blazoned across the press. The Home Office could only admit total inadequacy. While the transport company had been negligent in not complying with regulations about covering cargoes with tarpaulins, under existing law there was virtually no way of discovering such negligence before it was too late. Work began once again on a draft bill based on the principles set out by the select committee modelled on the hard work of Majendi. During its passage through Parliament, there was virtually no debate. No lobby spoke up against government interference in the industry, and there were very few amendments at committee stage. Politicians generally agreed that explosives accidents were a public hazard that needed government regulation. The bill received the royal assent in June 1875, and Majendi was appointed a Companion of the Bath for his efforts. The way in which this Act was enforced was very different from that of the Factory Acts. In the latter case, an ever-increasing inspectorate wrestled with the responsibility of supervision. 
the new and very small inspectorate of explosives, headed by Imagine D with just one assistant, another Royal Artillery officer, for many years, relied on the cooperation of local authorities. These authorities had powers of licensing and inspecting the manufacture of explosives in numerous small works. That is, works like small firework factories, of, their, of which there were an enormous number, very small-scale storage premises and sale outlets. They, the local authorities, were required to ensure that the sale and transport of explosives in their area was carried out according to the Act. They could appoint local inspectors with power <coughs> of search and even seizure of goods. Delegated powers were also granted to harbour authorities, wharf, dock, canal and railway companies to issue bylaws and to factory managers to issue regulation, regulations. All major factories and magazines throughout the UK were regulated by the Home Office inspectors themselves who oversaw the licensing system with extensive powers of entry, search and forfeiture of goods. Disputes were to be referred directly to the Home Secretary who could recommend the extension of the Act to any new explosives. The inspectorate based at the Home Office was a small team, just the Chief Inspector and his deputy until an additional inspector was requested in 1881 and another by 1896. There was also to hand the expertise of a chemical analyst, a distinguished FRS. Magendie's annual reports to the Secretary of State carefully detailed their dedication and energy, travelling huge distances to visit a wide variety of sites, attending inquests, minutely investigating accidents and reporting on them. This table, where is it? This table illustrates um, where I got to the expansion of their field visits over the 20 years between 1876 and 1896. Very easy to follow that with the inspector of explosives, very different from the reports of the inspectors of factories. From the word go, the um, explosives inspectorate were extremely good at their data and their reporting. Uh, and therefore their statistics. They seem successfully very early to have visited the main sites at least once a year and often more than that. And of course there was a huge deal of office work as well in terms of reporting. The imperative for their existence and the focus of their work was the promotion of occupational safety. But they were also building up a huge data bank of information about the growth of an expanding and diversifying industry which they often contextualised internationally in their annual reports to the Secretary of State and therefore to Parliament. Magendie's greatest problem lay with the non-cooperation of many local authorities, some of whom ignored the Act altogether, while many took no steps to follow local licensing and inspection of lesser premises and sites. Notable were the frequently dangerous fireworks manufacturers and outlets. He and his assistants worked tirely to visit and badger local authorities about their responsibilities. In 1880, for instance, visiting the clerks of 137 different authorities, constantly communicating with them. When his request for detailed returns about their local inspections 
revealed in 1878 that many simply hadn't appointed local officials, he nearly despaired. However, the annual report to the Home Secretary for the next decade reveal that a very gradual but steady improvement in the effectiveness of the Act due to his commitment and personal vigour uh, was uh, visible. Um, he died, in fact, in office in 1898, and in the last few reports, the early diatribes against local authorities, which were very vicious, had ceased, and the working relationship seems to have become relatively constructive, if patchy. So how effective was this inspectorate? Certainly following its establishment, the number of serious accidents was reduced as the understanding of explosives grew. The data shows that during the period 1878 to 1897, the number of serious accidents involving deaths and serious injury fluctuated between 13 and 27, with deaths ranging on average between 2 and 15 a year, very fluctuating, and injuries between 10 and 29. In statistical terms, this was an overall increase of some 10%. As Majindi pointed out in one of his last reports, this has to be set against a considerable increase in production between 1876 and 96. Between those two dates, it can be measured by increases in the number of factories of over 150%, number of factory employees increased by 33%, the number of magazines where they stored the uh, explosives over 90% and the number of different types of explosives expanded by 200%. Typical of the majority of Home Office inspectors involved in the industry, oh I just wanted to say that the problem with local authorities, as I did some reading in the later period, clearly remained a problem. I came across a report of 1951 into a major explosion at Avonmouth Docks in that year, where the inspector then complains about the lax licensing discipline of the local authorities, who, I quote, it appears to me carry out their duties under the Petroleum Act 1928 in a somewhat perfunctory manner. <coughs> and there are lots of other examples of statements like that. Typical of the major majority of Home Office inspectors involved in industrial safety, these men began by being reluctant to restrict the manufacturing success of producers in the highly industrialised nation that Britain had become. Yet once they engaged with the minutiae of safety issues of those involved in the activities of the industry, their commitment and their growing expertise inevitably led them towards ever stricter enforcement of statutory measures. The Home Office was particularly proud of the effectiveness of the Explosives Act, 1875, which remained the principal act of regulation for many decades. It certainly was still the principal act by 1975, and I'm afraid I haven't discovered when it ceased to be, for which it gave credit to its flexibility through the use of delegated powers. Troop, who became PUS, he was the very first Northcote Trevelyan recruit in 1870 and became an extremely effective PUS, retired and wrote a book about the Home Office in which he made this statement about the Explosives Act. Probably no trade or manufacturer had ever been subjected to such stringent conditions as this Act imp imposed. 
and yet its provisions are so elastic that by means of orders in council or Home Secretary's orders, it is possible to dispense with its requirements where they are unnecessary or to provide new safeguards against new developments of danger. However, as I've tried to point out, its vulnerability was the reliance placed on overworked local authorities to oversee safety of employees in thousands of small premises. In this, it was a very different method of inspection and enforcement from that of the factories inspectorate. Thus, both these 19th century models of inspection demonstrate the typical revolution in government pattern of an intolerable situation leading to inquiry, legislation, regulation and inspection, followed typically by further legislation and regulation based on expert inspectors' reports. It's a pattern that it may be instructive to revisit in the context of Grenfell Tower. Thank you.